Our writer in Turkey searches for the king of the Ney, an enigmatic and at times endangered flute that has long been a mainstay of Muslim musical traditions. Craftsmanship Quarterly presents The Reed Artist by Rolo Romig. I have no idea when I first heard the sound of the Ney. It's an instrument that everyone's heard before, even if they didn't know what it was. Argo, Zero Dark Thirty, The Last Temptation of Christ, and countless other films have put its distinctive wail on their soundtracks as a shortcut to a mournful, vaguely exotic atmosphere. But the first time I became conscious of where that sound was coming from was last year in Istanbul at an antique Sufi meeting house, or teke, in the jumbled-up back streets of a neighborhood called Karagamrak. A few hundred dervishes had gathered on a Monday in April for a late night of musical and spiritual instruction in the heart of the building, its walls covered with dark calligraphic swirls spelling the many names of Allah. When one dervish picked up a neigh and started to play, that's when the ritual came to life. The neigh is an ancient Middle Eastern flute, one of the world's oldest instruments in continuous use, But in Turkey, it means something entirely different than it does anywhere else. There, its sound and even its shape are nearly synonymous with religious feeling, and especially with Sufism, an approach to Islam that's difficult to define, but which is often described in shorthand as Islamic mysticism. Its appeal sits at the crux of several conundrums. The neigh brings music to a religion that often discourages the use of musical instruments, It's the simplest of flutes that in the right hands produces the most sophisticated of sounds. And in Turkey, its status tilts between trademark and contraband. By Turkish law, Sufi gatherings like the one I attended in Karagamrak are technically banned. Yet, today, there is perhaps no other Muslim country where Sufism is more integrated into mainstream Islam, and the ney is its prime symbol. Ninety-two years ago, the Turkish Republic was launched with a breathtaking attempt to erase and replace the culture of the Ottoman Empire in its entirety, from language to religion to song, the progressive along with the backward. The rift had its reasons, but it was too total, too abrupt. As the 21st century approached, the empire struck back. One of the most potent weapons on the Ottoman side of this culture war has turned out to be the ney. In the past two decades, the instrument has experienced such a surge of popularity in Turkey that a whole industry of flute makers now flourishes where none existed before. A tip for cultural revolutionaries? In the long run, the suppression of music always seems to backfire. I'd come to Istanbul for the usual reasons— a love of river ferries as a mass transit option, a strong preference for street cats over street dogs, an inability to decide between Europe and Asia. As I stayed on, I kept running into the neigh, its curious sound and its curious story. It doesn't look like much. It's a stick with some holes on it and a hat on top, but it's one of those instruments that gets a hold on people. Neigh players are a particular breed, obsessive, tenacious, a bit skewed. And it's not clear if they started that way or if the Ney did that to them. Like many before me, 
I became driven to learn how it works. I soon found myself on a mission to infiltrate one of the Middle East's less noticed Muslim networks, a vast conspiracy of musicians. And all across Istanbul, I heard the same thing. If I wanted to understand the ney, I had to meet the instrument's master, Niazi Sayin, an elusive elderly artist who was legendary not only for how he played the ney, but also for how he made them. A call to a lost past. I made my temporary home in Uskudar, a sprawling district of Istanbul on the Asian side of the Bosphorus. The vibe is part transport hub, part retirement home, a mashup that the magic of Istanbul transmogrifies into something entirely charming. Near the waterfront neighborhood, elders sit on park benches, sipping tea, thumbing prayer beads, and smoking cigarettes as commuters rush past them to catch a bus or a ferry or an express train while also smoking cigarettes. Glass-faced shops and apartment blocks rule the avenues. But on the back streets, alley cats still slink past long rows of old wooden Ottoman houses. Some of these houses are alarming in their state of disrepair, their distinctive enclosed second-story balconies rotting onto the sidewalk. Others have been recently and impeccably restored. The renovation is a double signifier of the fashion for Ottoman nostalgia under the Erdogan administration and of the money that's been poured into development as the Turkish economy has grown. The face of Uskudar is its riverside port, but its peak is Çamlıca, the highest of the seven hills that give Istanbul its special topography. When you look down on Istanbul from atop one of those hills, the first thing you notice are all the hundreds of minarets sticking up like candles from an old man's birthday cake. From a distance, they have a certain uniformity, but their construction spreads across seven centuries. The ney resembles those minarets in more ways than one. It too is a tall, slender cylinder with a tapered top and ancient origins. And like the minarets, in Turkey it serves as a symbol of Islam. But it didn't start out that way. People have played the ney for some 5,000 years, long before Muhammad, making it one of the oldest instruments in continuous use. In Iran and in the Arab world, the instrument has no religious connotation. In Turkey, the ney is used across the cultural spectrum, from Ottoman classical music to religious ceremonies to electronic pop. Ever since the 13th century, the Turkish ney has acquired an indelible association with spirituality and Sufi mysticism. And this is overwhelmingly thanks to the poet Rumi, or, as he's known in Turkey, Mevlana. It's fitting that Turkey and America know this poet by two different names. The way he is viewed, the man might as well be two different people. In the West... Ruby has come to be associated with a feel-good new ageism that only vaguely hints at Islam. In Turkey, Rumi is an unambiguously Muslim figure, and it's difficult to overstate the esteem in which he is held. Probably only Muhammad is quoted more often by Turkish Muslims. Born way back in 1207 in a part of Persia that is now Afghanistan, Rumi lived most of his life in what's now Turkey, 
and he used the nay in his writings for a boggling number of spiritual metaphors. The nay is both poison and antidote, he wrote. Its sound is not wind, but fire. I met my first nay-maker by chance. Wandering through Uskadar one May afternoon, I spotted a tiny storefront jammed full of long yellow reeds, like bamboo but bigger. When I peeked inside, I found a man with long, white, blonde hair crouched over a work table, drilling a hole into a reed that would soon become a neigh. This was Ahmed Sahin, a former imam who's now best known as a singer and a neigh player. Sahin is like the prince of the Istanbul neigh scene, but only in the sense that he usually dresses entirely in purple. I asked who he considered the best neigh makers in Istanbul. Those who learn from Niyazi Sayin, he said. This man, he said, had invented a new way of making the neigh. He'd studied the old ratios for determining where to drill the flute holes and found them lacking. So he shelved the systems of the ancients and devised a new formula that's become standard across Turkey. The master Sayin, he said, is 88 years old now long retired from both playing and making. It's widely held that he's the greatest name master, not just of his generation, but of the past century, if not longer. But Sahin cautioned me not to confine the man to his music. In Turkish parlance, Sayin is a hezarfin, a master of a thousand arts. He makes prayer beads. He does calligraphy and paper marbling. He collects singing birds and grows roses. He's interested in electronics. He's a different man, Sahin said. A special man. That night, I looked up Niazi Sayin on YouTube and was floored by what I heard. All ney players in the classical style use a rough, husky sound. Noise is something of a virtue in Turkish classical music. But in Sayin's playing... The husk is complicated by a kind of trembling, a strange vibrato that makes his music feel vulnerable, nimble, and exhilarating. It's music of high suspense. You never know when his dark passages of low murmuring will suddenly take flight into bursts of wild improvisation. This wasn't like any nay-playing I'd heard on a movie soundtrack. And the fact that he'd achieved these results in part by reinventing how this age-old instrument was built, that intrigued me the most. I asked Sahin if he could help arrange a meeting with Sayin. Inshallah, he said. And the way he said it, I wasn't sure if he was agreeing to help or brushing me off. An elusive master of an elusive sound. A week passed with no good word. One evening while sipping tea in a park along the Bosphorus, I happened to get chatting with a local journalist who'd made a documentary about the Ney. I mentioned that I was hoping to meet Niazi Sayin. He lives right here in Uskudar, she said. He's a wonderful man, she told me, and he could tell me everything I wanted to know. Everyone wants to interview him, she said, but he won't give an interview to anyone. I was stunned. Here was a Turkish journalist exploring a quintessentially Turkish instrument that had apparently become inseparable from Sayin, and he'd refused to participate in her film. 
The best way to get to Sayin, I figured, was meet every Ney artisan who knew him. The next day, I sat down with Rifat Varol, a young maker with the dark good looks of an old-school crooner. And probably, Varol got his start making these instruments in the army. He'd been playing Ney's since he was 14, and when it was his time for military service, he was coincidentally assigned to the province of Hatay in Turkey's far southeast. Today... Hatay is infamous as a crossing point for international ISIS recruits making their way into Syria. Among Ney players, it's prized as the best place in Turkey to obtain good reeds. I cut reeds every day, he told me over tea in an Uskudar cafe. I was not a very busy soldier. And a good thing that was. In Varol's estimation, a good reed is one in a thousand in a full day of tramping through muddy reed beds, he might find five or six. The neigh is a reed instrument in the most literal sense. The body of the flute is the entire reed itself, hollowed out, punctured with seven holes, and capped with a buffalo horn mouthpiece called a buspar, but otherwise looking much the same as it did when plucked from its bed of mud. To find the sound is very difficult. Varol explained. Sometimes it takes two months. It was clearly beginner's luck on my part. I was never able to produce a sound again. In centuries past, Varol explained, Ney teachers used to start their students on a Shah Ney, one of the largest and therefore the most difficult to make generate a sound. They'd give them a Ney with no finger holes and tell them to come back when they'd managed to play a note, he said. They'd come back a year or two later. His answer was instant when I asked him who was the best name maker in Istanbul. Niazi Sayin. It's very important for you to meet with him, Varol said. He's interested in everything. But when it comes to the Ney, he's the most important person in the world. The best way to find him, apparently, was to search the back streets of Uskadar. When the weather's nice, he said, it's easy to find him sitting in tea shops playing backgammon with his friends. Now, every day as I walked past the countless cafes of Uskadar, I studied the faces of old men, whiling away their afternoons with games and arguments and endless small glasses of sweet tea. It looked like a beautiful life, but I couldn't find Niazi Sayin among them. A Muslim Polymath As I talked to more and more of Sayin's protégés, and nearly everyone in Istanbul who plays or makes the ney thinks of himself as his protege, I started to compile a list of all the skills at which I was told he excelled. In addition to those Sahin mentioned, calligraphy, paper marbling, bird breeding, rose cultivating, I heard that he's an expert photographer, repairs old VCRs, plays an unbeatable game of tennis, maintains a database of old Ottoman buildings that have been destroyed, studies Sufi texts, and brews his own liquor. Oh, and that he used to play professional soccer. In both Sufi and musical studies in Turkey, there is a high premium placed on reverence towards one's master. But even by these standards, the hero worship that surrounds Sayin is eyebrow-raising. In Ney workshops, framed pictures of him are ubiquitous, Three separate Ney players compared him to Jesus Christ, saying that when it comes to the Ney, there are two eras, before Niazi Sayin and after Niazi Sayin. 
Everyone agrees that Seiyin revolutionized the way the instrument is played. He achieved his signature vibrato sound by twitching his lip dramatically as he blew, a technique that no ne player used before him, but which nearly everyone does now. From what I was hearing, it was not just musical talent, but also a rare technical ingenuity that had enabled Seiyin to coach such soulfulness out of a simple reed. What was it about him that allowed these two very different strains of genius to so fruitfully converge? I became preoccupied with trying to understand him, and equally determined to meet him. I dug up scraps of his biography. He was born in Uskadar in 1925, two years after Ataturk's founding of the Turkish Republic. World War II and poverty cut short his formal education. Professionally, he made his career primarily as a performer on Istanbul State Radio and as a music professor. I was told that he married once, decades ago, for less than a year. Perhaps the obsessive attentions he pays to his many arts exclude any possibility of a family life. The relationship that seems to have mattered most in his life is the one he had with his teacher, the great name master Halil Dickman, who died in 1964. More than an education, Dickman gave him a position in a long lineage of great name masters. His students told me that it's this link to the past, as much as the beauty of his playing, that makes Seyin the essential figure in the field. For them, Seyin forms a rare bridge to a musical legacy that was nearly swept away during the radical transformations that turned the Ottoman Empire into Turkey. Ataturk felt that his country's success depended on a full rift with the Ottoman past, replacing its cosmopolitan ethos with a fierce and newly invented national identity. To emphasize his point, he reversed the country's Asian orientation in favor of an embrace of all things Western. The reforms he instituted were dizzying in speed and touched on all aspects of Turkish life, from language to names, to hats. Music was no exception. The low point in the New Republic's suppression of the old music is often identified as 1934, when all Turkish music was banned from the radio for 20 months in the hopes that Turks would learn to like Western music instead. But an even worse blow for traditional Turkish music was the Republic's ban on Sufism, which Ataturk had many reasons to dislike. As he saw it, Sufi tekes were dens of corruption. Their leaders were political rivals. Their beliefs were embarrassing provincial superstitions. In 1925, the year Niazi Seyin was born, Law 677 outlawed all Sufi institutions, shuttered the tekes where they held their meetings, and abolished their practices. The problem was that, outside the exclusive precincts of the Ottoman palace, the Tekes constituted the sole institution that systematically taught Turkish music. Secretly, the performance of Teke music continued in private homes, but police raids and jail time remained very real threats for such gatherings. Muslims hosting private concerts would often keep a bottle of liquor on the table as a precaution. If the cops came, they said they were just having a party. A small rebel army of musicians and sheiks quietly kept the old music alive. 
It's like they were entrusted to carry this one small but very important seed and not lose it, the nay player Hakan Alvin told me. But when the time was right, they put the seed back in the soil so that it could grow into what it is now. All of Sayin's students told me that in order to study with him, he insisted that they learn another art form unrelated to the nay. He'd often assign their pursuits. A nay player named Bjuland Osbeck said he never even touched a nay during his first six months of studying with Sayin. They mostly made pickles. Another player, Ali Tan, told me that when he was having trouble playing a particular piece of music, Sayin told him to learn photography. Tan wasn't interested in photography, but he went out and bought a camera. You have to do what the master tells you. Under Sayin's instruction, Tan played around with holding the camera at different angles, and then he had his eureka moment. To play the piece he was stuck on, he needed to experiment with holding the nay at different angles, too. Tan is now Turkey's first professor of nay studies, and both his master's thesis and his doctoral dissertation were devoted to Niazi Sayin's contributions to the field. Niazi Hoja is Kutbunai, he said, the nay master. In a hundred years, one person is the Kutbunai. The creation of a musical instrument. I first saw a nay get built in the workshop of Gokhan Oskok, which can be found in a mini-mall in the neighborhood of Gusukyali, a one-time rural retreat that has now been swallowed by the city. Oskok looks like a man at war, partly thanks to his ensemble. Shaved head, camouflage pants, army green shirt. But it's mostly his eyes, which stare with an aggressive intensity. In his back room, Oskok showed me his cache of raw reeds, 1,500 of them, watched over by security cameras to protect his investment. After reeds are harvested, they have to dry out, gradually turning from fresh green to dead yellow, which takes at least a year. The reed is then stripped of its leaves and straightened. Wind gives most reeds a pronounced curve. Oskok selected one from the pile, carried it over to his tabletop stove, and held each of the reed's nodes over the flames. Then he brought it to a tall post intersected with holes of varying sizes. It looked like a cat scratching post. He then inserted the reed and bent it at each node, periodically holding it to his eye like a telescope to check his work. Sometimes the reed doesn't let you make it into something, he said. Sometimes it doesn't want to be a nay. It wants to go back to the reed bed. And an old nay, he said, will sometimes curve back to the shape it had before the maker straightened it. Even if the reed wants to be a nay, it's still trying to go back. Giant cane is mostly empty inside, with the exception of thin membranes at the nodes between each segment, where the leaves grow. In one motion, Oskok jammed a long steel rod through the length of the reed and whooshed away the detritus with an air gun. Then he brought it to his lips and produced a clear note. Even this early in the process, it was already a flute. After a quick measurement and six marks with a pencil, he drilled the six finger holes in a matter of seconds, then took a couple of small strips of German silver, an alloy of copper and nickel, and fashioned them into rings with the acid of a blowtorch. These rings, called parasvein, don't affect the sound. They keep the reed from splitting at the ends. Twelve minutes after he begun, 
he had a neigh. He played a little tune and laughed. I was surprised. I had heard so much spiritual talk about neigh-making. Opening the reed, I'd been told, was akin to a supplicant opening his heart to God. And so much argument and hype about kaidirma and other proprietary techniques that I was expecting a process much more deliberate and exacting. Suddenly, the nuances of where to drill the holes seemed hardly to matter. Oskuk warned me not to be misled by his speed. Each nay, he said, takes a full day to make from start to finish. The finger holes still had to be corrected and cleaned. The baspar had to be carved on a lath. In one of the most delicate steps, the internal nodal bores had to be expanded. To tune the nay properly, the inner bores have to be wider than those at the ends, and each nay maker seems to have his own technique for achieving this. Ozcook showed me his solution, a long rod of his own invention. When he pulled a switch near the handle, a set of surgical steel knives expanded at the tip, allowing him to widen the inner bores without affecting those at the ends. He called it a reed angio. He liked the analogy to heart surgery. Still, Ozcook seemed to be flaunting how quickly he could toss one off. He'd been making nays since he was 19. In fact, he started after a family friend offered an introduction to Niazi Sein. I was shocked, he said. It's like if you're a scuba diver and one day somebody says they're going to introduce you to Jacques Cousteau. Sein accepted him as an apprentice. He's gentle, but he's impossible to satisfy, Oskuk said. If he likes something, that means it's perfect, but you'll never hear him tell you that it's good. I was feeling more confused than ever about what separates an excellent nay from an average one. I told Ozcook that I was hoping to clarify this point by talking to Niazi Sein myself. He never, ever gives an interview, he said. Even if the president comes, he won't talk about the nay. Catching an interview with Niazi Sein would be an accomplishment, like walking on the moon. Guarded Secrets no two nay players gave me the same answer when I asked why the nay suddenly regained popularity. Several pointed out that it's the least expensive of Turkish classical instruments. You can buy one that's entirely respectable for about 150 lira, or around $75. An oud of equivalent quality would cost around 1000 Sandra Sinch, a German academic and musician who teaches at the ITU Conservatory, pointed out that tourism is a factor— when the state uses the whirling dervish as a symbol of Turkish culture, this points to the nay, intentionally or not. The current Islamist government has fostered a flowering of religiosity, one side effect of which has been a boom in republication of classic Sufi texts, especially the Masnavi. Take a look at the front window of any bookshop in Istanbul, and the Masnavi is likely to have its own display. I had a lot of customers who said... Our sheik told us we should play nay, and that's why we're here, Mehmet Yusul told me. It doesn't hurt that the Masnavi's primary nay metaphor, the instrument as an exile, longing for its past, dovetails nicely with the students' own feelings of longing for their lost Ottoman and Sufi birthrights. They don't take nay classes because they like the sound, the nay player Hakan Alvin told me. They want more from the nay. They want answers from the nay. I try to tell all my students, you cannot practice Sufism by playing the nay. 
The Water Buffalo's Contribution. Salih Bilgin tries not to think of it as a business at all. He's a bald, burly man with a dark mustache and an air of gruff irony. A casting agent might give him a role as a bookie. In actuality, he's one of the Ney's most soulful players and most respected builders. At his workshop in Uskudar, Bilgin and his apprentices make all manner of things. Prayer beads, calligraphy tools, earrings, machine parts, and Ney's. Bilgin began his lessons with Sayin in 1979, when he was 19. What we have learned from Hoja is a deep curiosity, he said, and we're still curious. That's why we taught ourselves how to prune trees, and our latest curiosity is tree grafting. As with pickling and photography, this flurry of tree-related activity has nothing directly to do with making nays. But according to the Niazi Sayin school, it all fills the same well of inspiration. This curiosity can have bad results, as you see from the scar on my cheek, Bilgin said. He pointed to a thin slash that cut from the corner of his eye to the hinge of his jaw, the result of an unfortunate encounter with a long thorn on a plum tree he was pruning. But this is not an expression of regret, he said. These are battle scars that we're proud of. We're soldiers in this holy war. He laughed as he recited more injuries. While making those mouthpieces, the bass bear, he caught his hand in his lathe, he said, at least three or four times. It couldn't have happened any other way, he said. If I'd stopped when I first caught my hand, I never would have gotten this far. What constitutes a nezen is the accumulation of these accidents, these incidents, the life itself with no regrets. Bilgin has made a specialty out of Basper, which are typically made from water buffalo horns. The horns arrive in the shop gnarled and bloody and infested with insects, and when you carve them out on a lathe, they kick up a powerful barnyard smell. A short while later, they're as smooth as onyx and shaped like toadstools. Thirty years ago, Bilgin said, there were only two Basper makers in all of Turkey. Now there's enough demand that multiple craftsmen in Istanbul alone have become Basper specialists, with the resources and time to experiment with style. Bilgin's front room is a veritable museum of mouthpiece experiments, Basper's he's made from a gorgeous array of materials, brass, cocoa bean, tortoise shell, plexiglass, every kind of hardwood imaginable. Most were for special orders, but once they were made, Bilgin couldn't bear to part with them. Bilal Kabat, a former apprentice of Bilgin's, has taken these experiments in a whole other direction, going so far as to inlay the mouthpieces with translucent white ram's horn, which allows delightful patterns of light to shine through. I saw this design in a dream, he says, but we were heavily influenced by Niazi Sayan's attempts to try new things. I could see his point, but the more I talked with people like Bilgin, who idolize Sayan, the more urgent it seemed that I must meet the great master. Would he live up to their praise, or would he shrink? Success, sort of. I finally found him just by rounding a corner. It happened one afternoon when I met Rifat Varol in an Uskadar cafe. 
After a couple of hours of talking nay and drinking tea in the Turkish style, request chai, receive tiny tulip-shaped glass on red and white saucer, plus two sugar cubes, repeat until you float away, I suggested we go looking for Sayin. Maybe he's somewhere near here, Verol said. We can check. I didn't expect much. As we stepped outside, I lit a cigarette. Istanbul was a bad influence. But when we turned onto the nearest side street, I immediately threw it down and crushed it underfoot. All I could do was gape. There, on a cobblestone alleyway lined with little tea tables, was the great Niyazi Sayin, deep into a game of backgammon. If you didn't know who he was, you'd take him for just another retired Turk, a big old man balanced on a small wooden stool. Sayin had a bushy white mustache and a long, complicated nose, and in his right hand, he clutched a string of white prayer beads. He looked like he was having a great fun. His opponent was his best friend, a middle-aged shopkeeper with a dark mustache named Moharem. A couple of other friends stood by, cracking jokes. We waited for the game to finish while the mid-afternoon call to prayer roared from the loudspeakers of a nearby mosque. He's one of the best backgammon players in Uskadar, my translator murmured as we watched in careful silence. Sayin caught the comment and smiled like a crocodile. They're trying to beat me by cheating, but they can't, he said. He had none of the aura of a genius or guru. On the back streets of Uskadar, he was one of countless pensioners living the life, cracking wise and killing time. As the game poked along, Verol showed around a photo on his phone of Sayin's car, a blue 1989 Caprice Classic. I can rent it to you for your wedding, Sayin offered. I'm already married, Verol said. If I take a second wife, I'll use it. If you have one wife, you're in hell, Sayin said. If you take a second wife, you're in the bottom of hell. Verol asked Sayin if he'd be willing to meet me for an interview. Sayin gave me a kind glance and flatly refused. Moharem invited me to sit. When he's focused on Batgammon, he doesn't want to see anybody, not even his children, Moharem said. We watched another game. Sayin barely noticed us, so he wandered off. You just saw the best nay player in Turkey, my translator said. That's kismet. No, it isn't, I thought. That's a Mullah Nasreddin joke. One last try. By August, I'd given up hope of ever sitting down with Sayin. Then one day, Enos hatched a plan. His father happened to be friends with Sayin, and Sayin happened to be addicted to grilled meat. We'd lure him into our company by throwing a kebab party. Enos's father vetoed the idea, but we did get Sayin's phone number. Three days before it was time for me to leave Istanbul, I asked Enos to make one last try. He called back a few hours later, but then I had already braced myself for the inevitable disappointment. Instead, he asked me a question. How much do you love me? Apparently, Enos had caught Sayin in a good mood. He was expecting us at his apartment that very afternoon at 4 p.m. There's no end to this business.
Armed with half a kilo of baklava, we found his featureless apartment building halfway up a small hill, not far from the Uskador shore. As we huffed our way up to the fourth floor, the stairs were cluttered with an increasing number of flowering plants. They're all his, Enos said. The door was open. Saying greeted us in a striped shirt and a big blue pair of shorts and invited us in. He breathed noisily, as if we were blowing into a flute with every exhale. I couldn't tell you what his apartment actually looked like, or even the color of the walls. Every architectural detail was obscured by piles of things, the treasures and hoardings from a lifetime of randomly assorted vocations. Hundreds of antiquarian books lined the walls, most of them related to Sufism, and everywhere were framed photos of old Sufi musicians and priceless specimens of Islamic calligraphy. There was so much stuff in the room that it took a while to digest it all. Near the ceiling, several cages with small birds, stacks of audiovisual gear, thousands of CDs, cassettes, LPs, 45s, 78s, a box of medications, an old brown fez, Sayin plopped down on a couch piled with books, next to which stood a tall glass case full of old cameras that had a couple of nays casually leaning against it. He produced a glass bottle and sprinkled massive amounts of lavender cologne in our palms, which we rubbed over our forearms and heads. Smelling good, we were ready to talk. I saw that his terrace housed several small lathes. I used to make prayer beads he explained, but not for a long time. Now I cook. The household chores are now my art. He excused himself to fetch some refreshments and came back with a homemade bottle of milky red juice. This is Kazilgik, he said, and it was fantastically complex and delicious. He listed the ingredients, Cornelian cherry, cinnamon, honey, Lemon, ginger, thyme. We chatted about American cars, his bird collection, mostly goldfinches, he's got 50 of them, and the weather. Then Enos explained the reason for my visit. While he spoke, a brown street pigeon walked into the room, looking more curious than lost, and disappeared behind a chair. But I hardly noticed. Niazi Sayan was ready to talk to me about the neigh. He started by debunking his own mythology. He wasn't the one who invented the sound chamber for the Bespar. Furthermore, he doesn't think it does any good. And he didn't play soccer professionally. He only played for the youth league of a pro team. He bemoaned the scarcity of good reeds and of smart name makers who know what to do with them. He described a lost technique of drying out reeds by burying them in horse manure. There's no end to this business, he said. There's always room for improvement if you work hard enough. The neigh is a primitive instrument, and it always comes down to chance. This was a surprise. Here was the great master belittling his own instrument. What he meant, it seemed, is that a particular neigh matters less than what the player does with it. The blowing style, the fingerings, the tilt of the head, the lip movements, 
They're all very important, he said. Looking for the closest utensil with which to demonstrate his point, he unscrewed the cap of a lime cologne bottle and brought it to his mouth, blowing into it like a basper. His hands trembled, but a clear flute tone emerged. Then he tilted his head slightly and blew again, and the note came slightly sharper. I'd been assured by Saiyan's many fans that his days of playing and making nays were long behind him. His hands now trembled too much to be able to do either. We'd been talking for two hours when Saiyan mentioned some recent experiments he'd been making with Amboshur, which is how a player positions the lips. Saiyan had been studying photographs of his teacher's teacher, the great Neizen Amin Dede, and noticed that he seemed to mouth the baspar in an unusual way, covering the top of the mouthpiece with his upper lip. Last week, I realized that that's how Amin Dede played, he said, excited at the discovery. That way you get sharp sounds better, much better than the other way. To my surprise, he reached for a neigh to demonstrate and blew two clear notes, one with the old embouchure, one with the new. To my ears, they sounded the same. Saiyan furrowed his brow. He clearly wasn't getting the sound he was looking for. He tried a few more times, then shrugged. I need to work on it, he said, and I will. was written by Rolo Romig, a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine. Romig teaches journalism at New York University and lives part-time in India. Research on the story was made possible partly by support from the Jerome Foundation. The story was read by Garen Norquist, an actor and student in the Master of Fine Arts program at San Francisco's American Conservatory Theater. This story originally appeared in Craftsmanship Quarterly, a multimedia online magazine about artisans, innovators, and the architecture of excellence. More stories, videos, audio recordings, and resources on craftsmanship can be found at craftsmanship.net.